Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, editors, sound editors, sound mixers, uh, composers, you name it, we talk to them. Missed you guys last week. Um, I was home with deadly food poisoning. Uh, and very kindly, our guest who was going to appear last week, Trip Jennings, agreed to come on the show this week. So he'll be joining us in just a few minutes. Uh, at the, after Trip today, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with Casper Van Dyne talking about his new film Hunt Club plus an upcoming film plus two very recent films uh, Heart of a Champion and Battle for Saipan so it's it's a it's a packed interview uh, with Casper and he is just the loveliest man but first Trip Jennings is going to be joining us momentarily Writer, director, producer, co-editor, cinematographer, also worked on sound design for one of the most interesting and informative documentaries you will see this year, Elemental, Reimagine Wildfire. It is narrated by David Oyelowo, and this really gives us, especially those of us who live on in the western states, in the United States, uh, the entire western seaboard with all the forestry in, in Washington, in Oregon, in California, and after all the major devastating fires that have happened, particularly in the, fa- in the last five to ten years, where entire communities are reduced to rubble, to ash, such as Paradise, uh, California, it just uh, one, um, nothing was left wiped out an entire community, and this has happened repeatedly uh, in Colorado as well. The, this documentary, Trip speaks with, we hear from the experts, and not just fire experts, such as some of the preeminent um, fire officials with Los Angeles County Fire Department, but also the U.S. Fire Service. Um, we get a history of wildfire in the United States going back more than a hundred years to the days of indigenous people. And fire has always been a way of life and fire is not necessarily bad. As we learn in this documentary, we need fire for the ecosystem because what it does when fire goes through and burns out a forest, new growth then regenerates and starts from the ground up. But what we also find out uh, is the importance of the older trees, the very old 60, 90-year-old trees and older that comprise the crown tops of our forest. And there was a school of thinking, oh, cut them all down, get rid of them, get rid of the old trees, let's just have new trees. But those old trees even after they are cut down, even after burned by fire, they are still retaining carbon and pulling carbon uh, out of of the air and helping keep the air clean. 
Uh, it's a it's such an interesting documentary that takes us through the different approaches to fire prevention, firefighting, um, clearance, logging. Uh, so I'm very anxious to speak with Tripp about what inspired this and how he selected all the experts that we hear from. And also, number one, there's beautiful cinematography uh, of wildlife. There's also frightening clips from homeowners on their cell phones who were actually filming their exodus from some of these communities that were bur- that were aflame, such as Paradise, California. So, ah, I, I understand. The man is on the line, so let's bring him on. Welcome, Trip Jennings. Hey, Debbie. Thanks for having me. I am so thrilled, and thank you for being so understanding that I had to cancel last week because I was dying with food poisoning. Uh, oh, believe me, I, I understand. I have a two-year-old, and uh, yeah, sick days are real. Oh, my God. Yeah. As Annie could tell you, I spent two days on the bathroom floor. So, no, I'm so sorry. Uh, But I can't thank you enough for, you know, making your schedule work so you could come on today. As I was just saying here at the top, Elemental Reimagine Wildfire. This is one of the most interesting and informative documentaries that anyone will see this year. It's great to see historical documentaries or documentaries uh, touching on on certain issues, so many that we are, have an inundate, inundation of uh, in terms of filmmakers telling stories about things, about the opioid crisis or climate change. But you, Elemental Reimagine Wildfire, you tackle something here that not too many people really have sat down and addressed. And this is one of my favorite documentaries uh, thus far this year, Trip. I learned so much watching this doc. I can't tell you. You're sending tingles down my spine. Thank you. Uh, You know, what I learned about, you know, the approach that we've had for years in terms of fighting wildfires, preventing them, as you, you know, Let's cut down all the old trees. Well, no, it's the old trees we don't want to cut down. We need those old trees. That's the ones we need. They're That's the right. ones that we need. Uh, and no, planting all these new trees is not necessarily good because once they hit a 20-year mark, you know, until then we've got an issue. Right. But you give us yeah. history. You take us back with indigenous peoples and you show us the relationship that the ecosystem has always had with fire and that it is necessary. It just matters about how you react to it, how you handle it, um, and how we basically screw everything up. Uh, (laughs) You know, what was it? And, of course, one of my favorite parts is where you actually take a look at new building designs that are being done for homes that will prevent and studies that are scientific studies being done to prevent the homes from catching fire, uh, which will prevent communities from being burned to the ground. 
So uh, it's just on every level, on every level trip, I can't recommend this highly enough for everybody to see, especially people on the West Coast uh, and into Colorado, all of these heavily forested areas. Um, now, what it, this is, you didn't sit at the breakfast table and say one day, I'm going to make a documentary about wildfire. Um, did smoke? Did Smokey Bear come to you uh, and and say, "Trip, only you can prevent forest fires." You know how? How did this? How did this come to you to tell this story to put this documentary out there? Well, it came to me, I think, in the way that uh, the understanding of how important you know thinking about fire is this like wake up that I think so many people have um, who are deeply affected by fire, you know, it comes because it, it, the, there are more fires, there are more acres burning and it comes when you don't expect it um, in many ways, that wake up call. Right. So a place I live outside of, I, li- I live in Portland and a place outside of Portland that I just love. I have been cherishing, you know, for 20 years, gorgeous uh, forest, beautiful waterfalls with this creek in the Columbia River Gorge, caught on fire in 2017, and um, blew towards Portland. And it was the first time that Portlanders in you know any recent memory for generations had seen ashes falling on our cars, mm-hmm. falling on our houses, the sky turned black for a little bit, you know, and that was a real wake-up call for me. One was that, wow, wildfires can happen pretty close, even to a big city like Portland. And two, I just really started to see the public discourse that was going on and how people were talking about and reacting, how elected leaders were talking about what we need to do next. Um, And I had a little shred of understanding about fire from a student film I'd created like 15 years earlier. And I started to say, oh my gosh, there is this giant gap in understanding, you know, between the best available science, or at least the little bit of it that I knew at that time, and the public discourse. And I began to worry, began to seem pretty clear that we were blaming the wrong things. And so much, so many of the conversations were talking about trees, right? Uh, The problem being in the forest, rather than the problem being the things that we care about most that can burn, which is, I think, our home and mm-hmm. our friends and ourselves, right? And um, and I think that's, you know, it took me five years to really fully understand that flip and how to think about this as, you know, a home ignition problem, as a community safety problem that starts in, in you know, with the places that we care about the most and the things we care about the most rather than in the forest. Um, because, you know, during the production of this film, I learned that in California, 80% of the homes that burn aren't in forests. Right. So I was like, wow, we, we really have to completely rethink. And that's how we came up with the title, Reimagine Wildfire. We have to reimagine this relationship in order to be safe and in order to, you know, live and thrive in a hotter, drier West. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it bears noting after all the rains that we've been having already in 2023 that just because we've had all these rains does not change the you know the fact that wildfires can still 
start. They can start from power lines, lightning strikes, or just extremely careless, stupid people who set campfires where they shouldn't. Um, yeah. But you bring up a very good point because, I mean, if there's water to, for grasses and shrubs and, you know, trees even to grow and it gets dry this summer, it could potentially make the fuel even more accessible to fire. Right. Might make even more fuel uh, and bigger fires. We don't know yet. I mean, I'm hoping we get a mellow season. But Did... you're right that it absolutely could dry out and we could be in California and Oregon and Washington and all over the West that got wet this year looking at a really big season. Yeah. And if not this year, give, you know, growth spurts of foliage, uh, you know, give it a year by next year. I would think most certainly we could be in a harrowing situation, potentially harrowing situation again, Uh, especially when we look at and listen to these experts that you have pulled together on elemental reimagined fire, wildfire. You know, how did you, once you figured out you wanted to tell some kind of story about wildfire, how did you go about breaking this down? Because you are, you're writer, director, cinematographer, co-editor. You do sound in here. You're a one-man band, a jack-of-all-trades, and you have mastered them all in this documentary. But how did Thank you... Thank you. I, I did a lot of that. Too many credits have my name on them. <laughs> <laughs> how did you, once you decided, okay... This needs to be told. I'm going to make a documentary. Reimagine Wildfire. Where do you even start? Uh, Just in amassing the information. And then later we'll get into the editing of this amassed information. But just to start. To come up with any kind of through line or information to obtain or impart or experts to find. What was your starting point with that? Well, you know, I'll say that I ended up with a film that is so different than what I would have produced had I, had you asked me to write it down, you know, in, in, you know, after the first shoot, right? Um, Like I said, we spent five years producing this. And in literally the very first shoot, I was in Southern Oregon. I was filming a prescribed burn and then interviewing some scientists afterwards. And I really expected that I was going to make a film about the, the good that fire does and the fact that we do need some fire on the landscape because, you know, last year's fire stars are often the only thing that stops this year's fires, mm-hmm. right? And so that was the knowledge that I came to this with. And I also knew that there's a whole ecosystem that emerges that can be just absolutely beautiful and uh, and important ecologically after a fire. But what really changed and focused this film and my journey was that during that first shoot, a scientist said to me, well, you know, percent fires are very important. They're an ecological benefit. But in terms of homes and communities staying safe from fire, anything you do farther than 100 feet from the house has very little effect 
on whether or not that house or other structure survives a fire. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, this guy's definitely wrong. And I basically spent five years proving him right to myself. <laughs> and that's what this film is, you know? Every layer of the onion that I peeled back to more deeply understand how that statement could possibly be true, you see my process in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, we start in the beginning and we're like, okay, why does firefighting not work anymore the same way that it used to? And it does work really well. And we, you know, and then we look at what are the treatments that we're doing currently and, you know, what's not working about that. And, and so you really, I mean, through the film, that is my actual sort of linear process of, of understanding this extremely complex, nuanced and often contradictory um, science, you know, and, and issue. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, I was just had to be very honest with myself and with the viewer. It's like, okay, cool. I'm on this journey. Well, and, you know, what you have done, the way you have put it together and you take us on this journey, and then we have all these branches that go off as as we hear from, as we hear from indigenous people and history and what they do with controlled burns, uh, you know, to replenish and also to create graze, pasture areas, grazing areas for larger animals that have disappeared such as the big elk um Mm -hmm. so it's very cogent it makes total sense as we watch this trip uh (laughs) well that's a big compliment thank you it's hard to pull all of it together in a way that you know it is complex it's a lot but we tried to make it pretty as well well and you know the pretty i can't say enough about the your cinematography, your lensing of Mother Nature and the rebirth after fires and the time-lapse photography. It is stunning. And it reminds us that even though forestry forests may be burned out, wooded areas may be burned out, there is still life. There is still life there, and it becomes home to new life. Uh, you know, the woodpeckers are hilarious, uh, the, you know, the bear, the young bear who is ripping a fallen tree apart to get to the grub worms. It's, I mean, it's just so cute. I mean, just rip a pan, rip a piece, rip a layer, rip a layer. Um, and then to see it's all amazing the- how much that giant animal, how much of, of bear's calories come from ants and grub worms. I know. Yeah. <laughs> But now, how did you go about finding all of the experts that you speak with here? Because you have some very impressive ones. Of course, most uh, probably one of the most notable, Jack Cohen, uh, retired yeah. from the U.S. Forest Service. Um, how, well, how did you find these people? Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, in that first conversation that I mentioned earlier, um, you know, where, where this expert was saying, well, 100 feet from the home is what you need to focus on. 100 home out to 100 feet, really. And he said, there's this lab in South Carolina where they burn down homes to figure out how, you know, what their weak points are. And I was like, they burn down homes. Like, okay, I'm for sure going to go there. <laughs> and then he said, there's this guy, Jack Cohen. He's pretty grumpy, but, um, you know, maybe you can get an interview. And he's kind of the guy who figured out the science. So 
it actually took a while for me to get, I think, build some trust and convince Jack to, um, to really open up to the film. And it took a, a bunch of different interviews over the course of a few years. But he really, I mean, I love watching firefighters react to his section because I was just being told over the weekend by a fire chief down in California that fought the uh, campfire. He was like, you know, for, for people in the fire service, Jack Cohen's just a hero. He's like, he's like, you know, the fact that you were able to bring his story out is just so meaningful to us. Right. So, so that was, I mean, and, and it just took a lot of kind of hanging out with Jack. And uh, I think over the years, he really began to trust us and began to share his story. Um, and, you know, there, I read a lot of scientific papers and, I call people and I say, Hey, I read this paper of yours and that paper of yours. And I'd love to interview you about it. And, uh, that seems to be a real, uh, you know, for any journalists who are, who are having trouble getting interviews with science scientists, man, read their papers and you can just impress them real quick. Well, read, <laughs> well, like, you oh, know, really, you read my paper. I mean, I'll talk to you. Well, read the paper, but then if you're confused about it, do a little more Googling so that when you call them up, you can actually speak semi-intelligently with them. <laughs> yes, but the, you know, the most fun part of my job for me is the fact that when you put a camera between you and some of the smartest people in the world, you get to ask some real dumb questions mm-hmm. and just pretend that they're just for the viewer. <laughs> and they'll answer, you know, and they'll explain. And, and so that's kind of what we had to do with this. And the other thing is, with the experts, you know, putting them in the place. We really try to move away from just a talking head interview, but right. there are plenty of those. Just put them in the landscape, right? Because mm-hmm. for this kind of a thing to really, I think, change our idea of fire and change really over 100 years of stories and of, of culture around fire, and how we understand it, how we think about it. What is the problem? Even just calling it forest fire is probably part of the problem, right? And so to change that almost 180 for a lot of folks, I think you have to do a lot of showing, not just telling, right? So we've got to mm-hmm. get the top experts in the world on this stuff. We also have to go spend time in the forest. You know, we have some multi-year time lapses in there. We have yeah. um, uh, owl footage that it took, you know, 18 uh, maybe it's even 24 months to get you know waiting for this um male owl to find a mate and then coming back when he's got a nest and filming the very first flight of these fluffy little owl owlets um so yeah you've just got to be able to show that you can't just tell somebody i saw an owl in a burned forest no i mean you need to see it and you even go so far the smoke beetle that just fascinated yeah. me to no end. You know, when I tell, you know, to all the listeners, you know, when I tell you this is an interesting film, this is beyond interesting. Who knew there was a smoke beetle that smells out smoke and goes to burned out logs and trees? It, you know, they have, they actually use infrared to seek out smoke and then heat. And they will show up days wow. after a fire. In fact, firefighters see them more than almost anybody else. I've, I've heard from a bunch of firefighters that say they'll be in the forest that you know, maybe the fire just moved through. It'll be smoking. There's you know, so much heat. And these beetles key into that. 
and they're totally dependent on post-fire ecosystems um, because it softens the bark and they're able to get into the tree, get the food that they need and lay their eggs in these burned trees. And so this, yeah, this web of evolution that's happened, you know, for millennia is just pretty fascinating and, and beautiful and intricate. Well, and this is something that you remind us of just listening to seeing the footage and seeing the experts in their uh, respective disciplines out in the forested areas or the burned out areas. Um, you, it reminds us that fires have been going since the beginning of time. Fires are a natural part of the evolution and the ecosystem of the entire planet. But it's, you know, it's what happens. You know, how do we react to them? Uh, what do we do about them? That's what you really give pause and make us stop and think. Uh, that, you know, hey, fire's not a new thing, people. You've seen the little cave drawing, the animated cave drawings when, ooh, BC finds, you know, fire for the first time. It's, but it's necessary. And that's something that is very stressed in here. Not overtly, you know, but subtly. And that is, I, that is so important. I find that part of it very empowering. Yeah. Too, because when we think about, if, if we think that the only way that we can live safely in fire-prone landscapes, millions of people, millions of homes in these fire-prone landscapes, and if we believe that the only way that we can go to sleep at night feeling relatively confident that we're not going to have to be evacuated or that we're, that we're, you know, our house will stay there and our family is going to be safe. If the only way is to figure out a way to control these wildfires, that is, I think, daunting and scary because mm-hmm. wildfire destruction is going up and up and up. Yeah. And the number of acres per year are going up. And, it's only 2% of those wildfires. We control the vast majority of them so effectively. The fire services are amazing at the work that they do. But it's those 2% that are so extreme that we can't control, and that's what puts homes and communities at risk. And we just, there's just no, as Jack Cohen says in the film, there's no management trend that says we are going to be able to reduce meaningfully that extreme end, the most difficult end of the fire spectrum. Mm-hmm. But what we can control is how we build and how we modify the structures we've already built right. to withstand that, right? And that's, you know, we spend sort of half the film, and sometimes I'm a little sad that it takes half the film to get to the punchline, right? But there is this very uh, empowering thing for me of, of, like, we absolutely can change the ignitability of our homes. We can prepare. We can retrofit. We can build smarter and at the same time, I mean, it makes, there's other benefits, right? Like when we replace our windows, we don't have to pay as much for heat. Um, yep. When we do all the things to make our home safer, we don't have to pay as much for insurance oftentimes. So um, there is this like sort of co- collective responsibility, which is, a, you know, a challenge to get all of our neighbors to do the thing, um, to keep their homes from burning and our homes from burning. We have a mutual responsibility to prepare for wildfire to each other. But it can start with a weekend project. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be solving climate change, and it doesn't have to be solving forest fire. You can go out 
on a weekend and you can change the vent uh, covers to your attic. Mm -hmm. You can uh, dig and sort of rake the leaves away from the first five feet of your house. You can change the relationship between your garden beds and your paths. So your paths are up against your house and they're non-combustible. And your garden beds are five feet away from your house instead. And simple things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that can make such a huge difference as to whether your home survives or it burns down. One of my favorite things is covered gutters. As a former child who had to help clean gutters for many a year, covered gutters, that's a godsend. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love that because a lot of it, you're double dipping, right? Yeah. science, you know, and I think there's a lot of these, there's a lot of fire films that I've seen that are very good and super interesting, but leave me with this sort of, had kind of like almost powerless feeling and yeah i mean when when we can do these sort of little things and they also make our lives easier in other ways yeah um i think that's a lot of the message and i think honestly i think that's how we adapt in the hotter hotter world right is we figure out all of the details um that make our lives so much more so much safer and more possible yeah it's it's darwin survival of the fittest you know, retrofit your house, use these tools. And that's something that's really interesting um, because you even get into the laboratory where they test, uh, you know, embers and wind and how that, how that impacts the spread of fire, but also how that impacts the spread to homes. And right. to see that unfold right there, as to you have a house here that's got its shaker, it's got shingles for a roof, it's got a lot of foliage around it. There's a lot of wood as opposed to a stone face front, aluminum siding, these differences. And the fact that there's a company, and I'm sure there's more than one, that actually do this kind of testing. I That just amazed me and the fact that the findings are solid they are concrete findings no pun intended um Uh, and yet nobody is really enacting these findings and turning them into law anywhere yeah well and i think that it's i I think the ideas are coming of age which is great and i really hope that this film helps them come of age right because at a certain point you know, when we keep doing the same thing and we keep getting more destruction, we keep trying different things to prevent the destruction and it keeps increasing, people are starting to look for other things that will work, right? Well, and that's where we wanted to, that was sort of the point of intervention for this film, right? Is like, oh my gosh, we don't have to have our communities burned down. You know, we can change that. Um, and thank goodness the scientists are not just in labs. Um, writing papers, right? Yeah, they're out in the field. They're out in the field or they're in a giant lab, an airplane hangar where they build houses and they burn them down. Um, That's a lot more fun to film than someone typing on a computer. (laughs) But, you know, something that I I really love is that you tie it all together here because climate change, global warming comes into this, uh, especially when we're looking at the amount of carbon that that 
these old trees are absorbing out of the air and why we still and why we need them you bring it all together so that climate change is brought into this and we need the trees because the the old trees are the ones that are going to help us um with climate change uh in taking the the carbon out of the air and things like that and storing that even after the tree is burned um right those things are so interesting but the way you integrate it all together you know i'm really curious how challenging your editing process was on this one with all these different as i said these branches of aspects of wildfire this could not have been an easy edit <laughs> it was not <laughs> i you know i think about like long-form television production, serious television production, which I do a lot of as well. Um, and, you know, so you don't always come out with the exact same show that you write in your treatment that you pitch. But I'm always surprised at the end of, a, you know, even a show for National Geographic where we're going to Congo and we're, you know, uh, producing something that is likely to change, you know, during the, during the filming. Um, how much your treatment... You know, in the end, I'm like, wow, this was pretty close to what we set out to produce most of the time. Um, and this one was just not that way. Uh, my understanding evolved so much over time. And, yeah, I, I would I would love to, you know, sit down and sort of write out all of the different iterations. But Sarah Quinn, who did the overwhelming majority of the editing, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think we had, you know, some number of versions in the hundreds by the end (laughs) that we had exported and looked at and said, no, that doesn't work either, does it? (laughs) We got to move this around because there are so many moving parts. I mean, you're right. And it's very hard to figure out how to pull this thread. Where is that thread? And I really believed from the beginning that although in this world of fire, fire science, there are a lot of silos. A lot of sides where people say, this is the answer. No, this is the answer. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. What I found throughout this process is that there are so many similarities between all of these sides. And if you have an hour and a half to unpack it, you actually really see this mm-hmm. very cohesive, um, very cohesive story that the science itself creates. Yes. And so that's where we were trying to find that thread and pull it. And so, it, honestly, it's, it's a huge compliment to me that you're saying we did that because I still wonder. So, you know, I had no trouble you know, following. Two hundred and eighty. You got to just stop, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, now, were you editing as you went over this five-year period, or or did you finally figure I'm just going to wait till I get all the footage and then I'm going to sit down and do it? Well, you know, to be honest, in um, at the end of 2019 we produced an hour, which was going to be an hour television block. Um, But things changed in 2020 for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And um, our home for that hour uh, television show didn't exist anymore. And we, um, and a lot of fires happened and that did sort of change the narrative. It added this new layer that we felt was really important. And so 
you know, I sat down with Ralph Bloomer, the executive producer, who's super smart in this space and, you know, thinking about the science and thinking about the story, um, and Sarah Quinn. And we said, okay, I think this needs to be a feature. Um, and so that, so yeah, unfortunately, right. We, we didn't, um, film everything and then make our feature, which would have been smarter and better, but hindsight's 2020. So, so yeah, in that way we were editing along the way, but, but we, you know, in, by the end of 2020, early 2021, we were, we were mostly done. And, um, and then we did film a couple of scenes after we had a sort of full hour and 20 minutes of length that mm-hmm. we felt that we needed to add because the, um, you know, for example, the carbon flux, carbon monitoring tower, um, had burned, yeah. but it hadn't, it changed a lot between the end of our edit or edit in 2020 and the final that we came out with. So, so we ended up adding a real wrinkle to that. And I think we got one of our most impactful scenes because we were willing to open the film back up. Yeah. I, that just blew my mind. And, you know, the fact that you were getting, the facial reaction for the first time of the woman who had spent decades working on this project. And she is seeing the forest for the first time after a fire and seeing the tower for the first time after the fire. That was shocking. And you could, it was a place that she had a real relationship with, Yeah, you know, very deep, both, both an emotional relationship, I think, because it was a truly beautiful place. Oh, and I, this absolutely you know, globally significant scientific research station. And she, when she told me that she she was really I don't know that she was planning to go back there. You know, I think that she was like 20 years and I'm not sure I can go back to this place now that it's changed so much. Yeah. And uh, I, I kind of I think I convinced her on the phone to go back with me. And. It was her actual real, you know, first time being back. And she was, yeah, the raw emotion on someone who is a scientist who deals with numbers, who can be dry at times. Uh, It just came out, you know. Yeah, I mean, that truly, just seeing her face. If anybody wants to see what devastation looks like, just look at her face, at, at the human devastation that she felt. Uh, at seeing that. Now, when did, because I think you have a perfect narrator here, David Oyelowo. Oh, me too. Um, how did you get David involved in this project? When did he come on board? Um, in, at the end of 2021, actually, so we were, we were looking for the perfect narrator, and um, it turns out that he lives in Tarzana, in L.A., and he backs up to wildlands he back his, his house backs up to a place where he can literally look down the hill and down the mountain and see smoke columns moving towards him and when we reached out to him and said boy we think you'd be perfect for this he was actually uh in the middle of doing some renovations on his house and he watched the film and he said okay i called my contractor and we are going to incorporate as much as we can of the findings from this film in our house. Wow. Let's do this. <laughs> we were just wow. like, oh, what a perfect partner. 
Oh. Um, and then, and then in the studio when he said "fire" for the first time, I that was the other moment when I was just like, "Oh my gosh, we are so lucky to be working with David. He is perfect." The way he said "fire" just sent tingles down my spine, and I just was like, oh, oh. "We're winning." Oh my God, trip. So now, where can everybody see this film right now? Great question. I'm glad you asked. It is in theaters for another uh, seven weeks, I believe. And so if you go to elementalfilm.com, which is our website, there is a list of theaters across the country. Um, It opened last weekend. We were at some sold-out shows in California, which was really fun. Great Q&A sessions. We're going to be at as many um, of the theaters as we can. Mm -hmm. But uh, check listings on our website. And then we're going to be streaming um, on lots of platforms in June. And I mean, that's, I mean, I cannot recommend this highly enough. This, and it's not just for the Western states that this applies to, this applies anywhere. Um, it just so happens that the Western states seem to have a bigger problem with drought than the rest of the country does. Uh, which, yeah, that is true. But I'll say that, you know, we initially included a big fire in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of homes were burned down. There, there's a lot of fire in the east, a lot of yep. fire in the southeast. And um, sadly, more and more, even in the northeast of this country, that we thought was really safe from fire. But we're seeing more and more uh, acres burned. And we're actually working with some communities in the northeast to bring this film because they're saying we're actually starting to see this as a, as a threat more and more. And we want our people to know about it. Well, so, so yeah. yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right. It's all over every every terrestrial ecosystem, almost every yeah. in the world experiences fire. Um, and, you know, as we turn up the temperature a little bit. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in, in uh, suburban Philly and uh, my grandparents had had a house. They lived down at the at South Jersey at the shore. But on the mm. way to get there, it's in the Pine Barrens area. So I grew up with forest all around her house. Now, most of those over the years, you know, people bought lots, chopped down trees, put up houses. So you, no more could you just walk out her front door and cross the street and go pick wild blueberries. Doesn't happen. Hmm. But along the way, the drive to get from our house in suburban Philly to Forked River, New Jersey, you went through a very, very, very long section known as the Lacey Tract, and it was all, you know, undeveloped. It was all natural trees, Uh, and it was massive, absolutely massive. And I was already living out here in L.A., and I get a call from my dad one day telling me that the entire tract is on fire, and it was spreading everywhere. And here you are, you're in South Jersey, sandy soil, uh, and it's a lot of pine trees. And pine has, is very waxy. So it, like, it, it gives itself more fuel. But the entire thing went up, and I forget how many, thou- tens of thousands of acres. But it, it was endangering the Bamber Lake area. They were evacuating people. They evacuated a zoo there. I just, 
And people don't think about that in southern New Jersey. Right. And I went home uh, just months uh, to visit after that. And as we're driving through there, I mean, I was shell-shocked at the damage. Shell-shocked. But I could already see new growth starting. Hmm. Wow, you've really lived this. That's yeah. fascinating. I, I love your story. Thank you. You know, on a much smaller level, but you know, I under you know, I understand, you know, how that works. And to see it firsthand and to spend my whole life driving through Lacey Tract to go visit grandma. Uh, and then one day it's gone. And I mean gone trip. Um that wow. was that was a shocker. A real shocker. But I will never forget my joy at seeing bright green new things growing, coming up through the remnants of the fire. Yeah, it's very healing. And I think it. people that I talk to are often surprised about how quickly that can happen. Yes. New life brings out immediately. It's this reset that can be so healthy. Not yes. every fire, but so many fires. Most of these yeah. fires really, you know, and, it's this stimulus. And my big concern were all the box turtles that live in that area. Yeah, I was worried about the box turtles, but they can burrow underground. So, um, you know, I ho- I had hoped that so many of the small animal life there would repopulate, and it has. It has. Um you know, and, and as we say in the film, not in these words, but it's not their first rodeo. Nope. It's, you know, we come at fire um, from a human time scale. And the places that we love change overnight. And it's very hard for us to see. And it's, sometimes I think it's hard for us to remember and understand that these ecosystems have been dealing with this. Since well the, before we got here. Since the beginning you know? of time. And um, Right. And species that we think might just be totally wiped out by a big fire come back the next year. They mm-hmm. make nests in the same trees. Yep. Not everybody. But some. But there's a lot of hope. and There's a lot of hope, I think, in the, in the regrowth and the rebirth after a fire. Well, there's definitely a lot of hope um, for us to prevent... A lot of the problems that we've had, a lot of hope to prevent whole communities and neighborhoods being wiped out from fire um, in elemental reimagined wildfire. I mean, just, I love this documentary trip. I just can't say enough about it. I absolutely love it. Well, thank you so much for watching it and taking the time to say all of that wonderful stuff. I'm going to be smiling all day. Uh, Well, I'm glad. Now, I'll be smiling when you make another doc and you come back on the show. Oh, yes. Well, I will. We'll talk in a couple years. (laughs) (laughs) Trip, thank you so, so much. And you have a great rest of traveling and opening everybody's eyes in movie theaters about elemental reimagining, reimagined wildfire. Thanks. Hopefully I'll see some folks there. Thanks so much, Trip. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Trip Jennings, writer, director, co-editor, cinematographer of 
Elemental Reimagined Wildfire in theaters in June. It's going to be hitting all the usual suspect streaming platforms. So it is. It's interesting. It's informative. And it's, you know, it's beautiful to see what Mother Nature does on her own. Um, All right. We're going to switch gears here. And we're going to talk about the Hunt Club. Uh... This is, <laughs> there aren't really that many words to describe Hunt Club. It's written by David Lipper and John Saunders. It's directed by Elizabeth Blake Thomas. Uh, and Elizabeth also directed a film that came out, was shot and came out during COVID lockdown that starred David uh, called Just Swipe, uh, along with Jody Sweeten, who you know best from Full House and Fuller House. But now, David has uh, put pen to paper with a very interesting film here, Hunt Club. Uh, Casper Van Dyne stars as Carter. He owns this hunt club. His club manager, so to speak, is a man named Virgil, perfectly played by Mickey Rourke. Uh, And you think it is. It's a hunt club. You go out, you shoot things in the woods, pheasants, things like that. And one of the rites of passage, uh, Carter is trying to indoctrinate his son Jackson and make him a man by having him come to the hunt club. But it's not pheasants or squirrels or anything that they're hunting. What they're actually hunting are young women that they have kidnapped, shackled in a barn. They are held essentially prisoner by Virgil. And then they have weekends and invite men to come and hunt these women while it is the whole event is streaming over cameras throughout a forest. Uh, we have a forest theme today, people. Um, they stream it and then people are watching all over the world and betting on who will survive 24 hours, who will make it through the night, who won't get caught by their hunter. Um, Casper, in his role, uh, co-starring is Mina Savari, who is amazing, Will Peltz, Maya Stojan, and of course Mickey Rourke, then Jason London, Jeremy London, David Lipper, and Kip Triple. Um, Casper as Carter is amazing. He oozes a charming evil toxicity like a snake oil salesman. On the one hand, you think he's sweet and charming. On the other, as you see his true colors come through, it takes a lot of skill. You have to be very uh, deft, agile as an actor to pull this off, and he does it beautifully. There is a good bit of action here, the bulk of which is handled by Mina Suvari and Maya Stojan. They do the heavy lifting when it comes to action. Um, and it's wonderful to see. There are some great themes that come through in the film. Um, it looks good. It keeps moving at a very good pace. Will Peltz is, is a surprise here. He is a quiet yet key element in the process. Uh, 
And it, it falls upon the London brothers and David Lipper to really take male toxicity to the most disgusting level. So it's well worth seeing. I had a chance to speak with Casper last week, and he is a gem. And this is just after seeing him in Heart of a Champion with Yaya Goslin, and just prior to that, Battle for Saipan by Brandon Slagle, which is based on a true story of the battle for Saipan that, during World War II. It was one of the last big pushes of the Japanese army. Uh, so in this interview, we actually touch on all three films. So because we're going to run late running this interview, but take a listen. Casper Van Dyne talks about Hunt Club and more. Debbie, this is Casper. Hi, Casper. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, I am beyond thrilled to get to speak with you. I mean, I've been a critic for in my 40th year now. I've never gotten to talk to you, and I am beyond excited. Oh, well, I'm glad. I, I, I don't know, because sometimes some of my things aren't so critically great. But, <laughs> well... <laughs> but I'm, I'm grateful to talk to you too, especially if you're excited to talk to me. I don't. Were you able to see the movie? Oh my God! Yeah, it's like they've had my like three different pull quotes of mine on different ads for the film. Uh, the, am I the one? I've seen that one that that had me up with a picture of me. Is that from you? So well, thank you. So interesting. I go you, it, uh, when I did this movie. David Lancaster, who's been a friend of mine for a, a long time, th over 30 years. And when he, he called me up, he goes, hey, I got this script I wrote, and I think you're perfect for it. I read it, and I go, what are you talking about? What? <laughs> and he goes, because, Casper, I have a woman director, woman first AD, woman second AD, women producers, women uh, costume, all the women costume, all the women makeup, all the women, so many women on this. It was mostly women on the crew. Uh, <laughs> and he goes, I can't have somebody that, you know, I have to have somebody that I know is a... Uh, uh, that I can trust to, to be there, to be the head of that bad guy. So uh, I, I appreciate that. I mean, you blew my mind. And let me give you the, the context, which made it even more remarkable, your performance even more remarkable, Casper. A couple months ago, I watched Battle for Saipan that Brandon, that Brandon did. Oh, yeah. And I, I love that film. I didn't know that true story. Yeah, that was something else. I was really, oh, oh I was... I didn't want to do a disservice to that that man because he, it had been a secret for a long time. Because the army, once he when he killed people and just to help defend when he when the Japanese did their last push in Saipan, the five thousand Japanese pushed against the Americans. There was the last, it was their last chance. They thought, and so they did this last push, last offensive, and they went into the hospital. He ended up breaking his hypocritic oath by standing there and shooting and killing them. And at the end, he was just stabbing them with knives as they were stabbing them with bayonets, and he died. But he was able to save some of the, uh, um, some of the, the, uh, the, the, the wounded and the yeah. and doctors. Not all of them. Some of them died. But if, it, if he hadn't done that, they would have all died, is what they said. But Nobody talked about it until he got an award under Obama, because he was now dead. Mm -hmm. but, um, they finally recognized what he did was, you know, he had to break his hypocritical, otherwise everybody would have been dead. Yeah. So he would have lost more lives. But just an amazing story, and it's so well done, and I just loved your performance. But then, in February, I get this little indie to take a look at called Heart of a Champion, and here you are, this wonderful, sweet, 
kind guy with horses and it's like oh my god I fell in love with the film and by the way I, t I spoke with Yaya about Heart of a Champion and she raved about working with you raved about working with you on that film but here's you know having seen you in full on armament survival mode and then seeing you in this sweet character and then within a week of, of seeing Heart of a Champion I watch Hunt Club. <laughs> have you seen Have you seen Daughter yet? No, not yet. And have you seen Have you seen um, Have you seen Mad Heidi? I did see Mad Heidi. <laughs> I did see Most Dangerous Game. I I have seen so many of your films over the years, and it, uh, you never cease to amaze me with your agility and ability to go in and out of one type of character to another. There aren't a lot of actors that can have the range that you have, and they get pigeonholed. You cannot be pigeonholed, Casper. It's, it's that simple. I think I was more pigeonholed in, in when I was younger, but in, in defense of the industry, I think I also hadn't had as much life experience. I mean, I'm a 54-year-old man now who's been divorced a couple of times, married again, had kids, they've all grown up, been through a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of traumas and different things happen to me. And I think that only gives you uh, more tools when you're acting. Mm -hmm. So I think that helps me for other roles. And, you know, being a father, you know, it, it's hard. One time I was, I'm, I'm shooting the season finale right now of All American over at Warner Brothers. And I, when I first got this job, I called up, my daughter called me on my way to set and she goes, hey dad, what are you doing? I go, well, I'm on my way to be this really bad racist alcoholic father she goes that's okay dad because you're a really good dad oh and that just that was so this is my daughter grace who's uh on stranger things and doing all her own thing now she was born during starship troopers she's amazing talented she's much more talented than i ever ever could even hope to to be and she's only 26 so i'm just so impressed with her but i mean that that gave me uh more of a freedom to be fully embrace the characters and the roles and i think i when you have people that support you in your life you have you know your daughter who supports you and your wife who supports you and your parents and your siblings and everything like that i think it it gives you more freedom so i've been very blessed well debbie i think you're awesome i'm so <laughs> grateful to be interviewed by you and i appreciate that you've seen a whole bunch of my things and uh, you know i'm just trying i'm just trying with all these films you know they're little films these aren't like big major films you know they're 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 little films that are uh, really have a, a lot of heart and soul and a lot of people that are trying to do their best, and I appreciate that. That's what I gravitate towards, all what I like to call the low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget indie films, because somebody has to show them love, and it's all these little films over the years that have given us some really talented directors, some extremely talented actors, cinematographers, and they they de deserve as much love, if not more, than the big tent poles. Well, I think there's more freedom. What I've noticed is there's sometimes there's more freedom in the little independent to actually explore and, and really go in, into your character deeper, at least for in my experience of what I've been able to do lately. And, and maybe it would be different if I was on the, one of the big ones in, in a different way. But uh, right now I've just been really uh, lucky and, and, you know, I've... I have a, a good manager, Jeff Goldberg, and a good agent, Todd McGinn, and they both, uh, they're always just throwing these different things at me, and sometimes they don't agree. Sometimes they're like, well, I don't know if you should do this one. 
And then one of the other ones like, I really like it. And then I'll read it. And I'm like, oh, I'm on. That, that happened with daughter. One of them was like, I'm not sure. Because he goes, he knows I'm a father. And so he, he didn't think that that would be something that I would gravitate towards. But I thought it was an incredible script. So, you know, when I have these, these, these moments. And then it was all shot on film. So it was like something, a whole unique experience there, that one too. So I'm just grateful for all of them. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you saw Hunt Club. You've got to talk to me about Hunt Club because of the very subject matter of this film. It's tricky in this day and age. It's very tricky to have a film that really, the setup, as we're learning about Carter and Jackson and Virgil, Mickey Rourke just out there as always, um, as we're learning about the club and what it is and the male toxicity that is developing, and we're thinking, and I'm thinking, you know, oh my God, what is this? And then we see women in a barn in shackles. Yeah. This is like really tricky territory in today's day and age to navigate that. And I'm thinking, where are they going with this? Because knowing your body of work, there had to be some kind of something to happen. Because I couldn't imagine imagine you doing a film that was gratuitous like that just for the sake of gratuity. Uh, absolutely, 100%. Like when I read this script, when David came to me and said, hey, I think this is great for you. And I read it, I went, what are you talking about? I mean, I've known him for over some years. I was like, There's, how do you see me? He goes, no. You can't, I can't have somebody that is, is, is that character, play that character, because I need to protect the women. And he hired all these women behind the scenes, so that when we get in there, the first act is setting everything up, third act is the men being horrible, and the third act, the women, is the good old-fashioned revenge. And, and, you know, it was so powerful, because I'm, I'm so disturbed by, like, the, 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 the scene where... The, the the two London brothers who creeped me out so bad yep. when they're doing that to that poor young woman, that poor young actress who they, they monitored everything and the director was very good with it and everybody was very everything was really they, they did it in a way that I, I can respect. Um but I, I the first time I saw it I had to get up and leave because I couldn't see that. I couldn't yeah. watch it. I mean I, I got I got daughters and sisters and everything. I'm like I can't see that kind of stuff. <laughs> so uh, I even got up and left in the movie. My wife stayed in there and everybody else and I was like I can't watch it. But I watched it I stayed this time because I was stuck in the middle of the theater <laughs> and I'm sitting next to my agent and I'm sitting next to Ed Newmeyer who wrote Robocop and Starship Troopers uh-huh. and his friends and his wife and I'm just like I'm hiding my eyes on this but when we got to the part where the girls come back and enact revenge, the women in the audience, which was two-thirds women, were screaming, yeah, woo And I'm like looking around going, I'm just acting in this, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> they were such huge screams of like, you know, they were so empowered. And I think if, if we weren't horrible in the beginning, if you didn't see that, it would just been women gratuitously killing men, which we've seen movies like that right. too. But, but I think this one, it's hard to watch at first. It really is. And it's hard to be a man and watch it, especially around women, too, because then you're, like, even more, like, you know, because the women were uncomfortable. Everybody's uncomfortable seeing it, but then when, when they get to it, then the women, they get really empowered, and it is, you know, and Nina did an amazing job, and Jessica did an amazing job. And every, you know, I was just so impressed with all of that. I knew something was about to shift once Maya's character, Tessa, shows up. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. And then to see Mina totally shift. She did a 180. 
from what we had seen, just absolutely outstanding. And to see her going toe-to-toe, and I like how your character, Carter, he kind of stayed out of, for the most part, tried to stay out of the bloody fray. Yeah, I that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but a, a relationship in the film that I, that I hope people do not overlook is the one between Carter and Jackson. You and Will Peltz have an amazing chemistry together on screen. And I'm really curious how you went about building that relationship because you can sense the fear that Jackson has for his dad, but also the need to please him. And that requires give and take on both of your parts to pull that off. Yeah, I think he's a... I think he's a, a really a, a, a strong, young, up-and-coming actor who really put a lot into him. We'd go out and eat lunch together, and we'd hang out, and we'd talk, and, and I, I still call him my son, and he still calls me Pops, and, and, and I'm, I'm very proud to have worked with him, and, and I, I love and adore him, and I think he's so talented, and I did appreciate the relationship. I had to have that at least that redeeming quality Mm -hmm. a father who loves his son otherwise there'd be nothing to like about Carter I'm not saying that there's a lot to like about him but he does love his son more than anything and he's you know know, in his own way in his own sick way and also they they let me add that part where I got to say we you know when they're messing around with that with the young girl he goes yeah they're they're just having fun with her and I'm like well you tell him to stop we're gentlemen we're not you know, we're not racist or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I, 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 you know, I want to have something, some, a little bit of belief, even if it's completely warped, which it is, sense of, like, you know, um, what is right. There had to be something. I couldn't be all yeah. with the villainous twirling in the mustache, otherwise it would have been a really boring character, I think. Well, and what also happens with the relationship, with the dynamic, and the chemistry that you and Will have is throughout the film, the first act and into the second you're stressing to Jackson, you know, you're going to be a man. This is how you become a man. You've got to step up. You've got to be a man. Well, not to give away any spoilers, but we do see Jackson actually become a man a and man. step up and think for himself. Yeah. I mean, there, there, you know, it was hard. It was hard to, to watch the beginning of the, the, the first act of the movie. It's almost terrifying. Like you just said to me, you're like, uh, where's Casper going? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was nervous too. I'll be 100% honest. I was nervous, but, but I like that he said this is about women empowerment and that there was a woman director and there's so many women involved with it and they were all beautiful and amazing and I really appreciate them and, and they really were the backbone of the entire film for us. This is such a well done film. Initially a film like Hunt Club, you wonder, okay, is this just going to be like a B-movie kind of horror film or something? And it's not. There are themes here. There is character development here. I mean, there's so much packed into this film, and I think Elizabeth did an amazing job directing it. Yeah, and, and, and with the thing, yeah, I think she did too. And I and I love, this is the thing, when it was written by David Lipper, he put it, you know, everything with tactical gear, and they were all in these, they had scopes, and all the uniforms were like, you know, all the men were going to be in like the same uniform. We're all going to be like military. We were going to be like in camo and tactical camo and really, you know, really just top of the line equipment. And then the, with the, the, the costumer and, and the director and everything, they came in with this 
this really unique, the, the cowboyish kind of <laughs> costumes and eccentric, and and we're all unique looking, and uh, it's one of my favorite wardrobes. It helped add to the character itself. It was a huge gift. Thing is, what Carter is wearing. Number one, the cowboy hat. I thought, oh, that's cute. He, you know, I just saw him in Heart of a Champion wearing a cowboy hat all the time. Not as fancy a cowboy hat in Heart of a Champion. No, no, not at all. Uh, you know, more of the bare bones straw kind, but it really gave you and the way you physically wore those clothes, Casper. And I've noticed this in your roles is the costuming really informs your posture, your stride, how you sit. You're one of the few actors that I can really see that in. It does something to you that it really adds to the characters, and it does that here with Carter. Well, I, I agree with you 100%. It is definitely the wardrobe was like, it's like putting on a new skin of who this person is. And I'm not this kind of person that would ever do any of what, <laughs> no. what I was doing in this thing. I'm, it, it's just not, it will go against the grain of everything that I am. But... But being able to put this on and, and become this, and I, and I wear a lot of cowboy hats and cowboy boots. It's just I used to ride a lot of horses. I, I used to have horses, and so I still ride. I still, you know, but I don't have horses right now. But I, I still love, you know, that aspect of it. But this was just a different way of being a cowboy. It was just unique, and and I loved it. I loved that, and I loved the cinematographer and the way they shot it too. I thought it was, you know. For a little film where we shot in just uh, two weeks, I was so impressed. The cinematography really is, it is really nicely done, especially when we get into the barn and the way the camera is dutched and angled and the framing, or in the one room with our London brothers doing weird and wondrous nasty things. It's They're, they're terrified to me. That, to, that, to that extent of creepiness is, you know... Is reminiscent of Star 80 to me for that. For what yeah. And then Mickey Ward coming in, and I got to do like three of my scenes. We David just had a, because um, he was helping out with everything. He goes, why don't we just have you guys do improv? And I got the improv <laughs> with Mickey Ward, and I got to go, oh my God, this is why he is Mickey Ward, because I, I'm such a huge fan of, you know, the Pope of Greenwich Village, uh, Diner, the rest. I mean, I think he's, I think he's had some phenomenal. Um, He's done some phenomenal work. And this one, for me, to have a scene like the improv, even so it wasn't like major things in this, it was just a little bit. I got to do a little improv with it. wasn't in the script what we were saying. It was just what we were improving. The bones were there. But uh, for me, that was a kind of a thrill because I thought, oh, yeah, that's why he's Mickey Rourke. It was very much two good old boys, but we still knew who was running the operation. Yeah. And it wasn't Virgil. No, it wasn't Virgil, but but he did, and for him to do that was impressive because you know he is he's somebody who is that would be that guy normally cast as right. He came and played that other way, so that's where I saw that that still he still he still has that ability. Uh huh. They were they were right the way they handled it with him. For and me, at least it was, that was my experience with him. So that was a, a thrill too to see somebody because I wasn't sure. You know, you, you know, you hear different stories, you hear everything else. But then when he when they let us improv a little bit, I went, ah, okay, <laughs> which was fun for me. I love I love actors. So <laughs> with, uh, you know, with go off on that with these smaller independent films, Casper, do you get much opportunity to improv? Um, you no, know, not. 
I mean, there's some. Like in, in Battle for Saipan, we did. We added a lot of the baseball stuff, and we kept adding different things, and, and the director was very open for it. He had, a, he had the nuts and bones of that in there. But Louis Mandalore and I got to do a lot of the uh, – we, we improv some of those uh, those things, and we just added some things, and then it was that, and it was like this. Mickey and I completely improv three of those scenes, completely, just off the cuff. And I was like – Okay, this is the real deal. He just comes, you know, he comes in, and, and Mickey's just, and I got to go with whatever he says, because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what was going to come out of his mouth. And then we just had those things. So that was kind of cool. That was, a, that was a new experience, and I liked that. So now, what do you look for at this stage of the game? And will I see you behind the camera directing anymore? You haven't done that just in a few years. I yesterday for a film. I, I'm gonna talk to the producers on Sunday. It's a great movie. I can't talk about it yet, but if I get to direct it, I will be directing oh this summer. Yeah, I'll direct this film. I would love to, and, and it's a, it's a good budget too. It's better, you know. It's a, it's, but it'll be yes, I will be directing again. I just haven't. I, I got to direct the the movie for Asylum, and they wanted to get it to Redbox, and it worked, and they got it. Then I directed two other movies and by two different producers that wanted to get it on Lifetime, and so I directed it to get on Lifetime. I see nothing against that or anything like that, but that's not what I what I normally like to watch. Mm -hmm. So that's not my normal film to do. So I just wanted to wait. So I haven't, I've said no to directing all these different films over the last, probably since 2015, since my last time directing. And so I haven't, I haven't done another film, but I just got one that I want to do. So, and it's, it's like... Uh, I'm going to talk to the people and see if we're going to make it work. But yes, I would love to direct again. But it's got to be something that's going to be a passion project because I don't want to put it in and just... You know, I, I, I did what I was supposed to do. I did my job and, the, and both, both the Lifetime movies for two different producers at two different times. Both got on Lifetime as the Lifetime premiere movie, which was what they wanted. But they just wanted to get it on Lifetime. But then they got you know things that they wanted. They, they got it. They, I, did what, I did my job. But that's not what I would have wanted to make as a film. And I didn't have final edit on any of them. They weren't even my fight. They weren't what I would have done. <laughs> so I would have even changed the edit more, but I'm not, you know, Lifetime has the way they want to do it. Asylum had the way they wanted to do theirs. But I'm still so grateful for those times. And that's really because that gave me more tools to think, too. So and more appreciation for uh, the whole crew and cast and director and everything. It gave me a whole new, and the director, of course, always. But uh, it was it was, uh, it was fun. And so I'm looking forward to it the next one I get to do. And if this does happen, you'll be the first person that, that heard about it. So. Yay! I like that. Well, I want to be the first person you talk to when you're done directing it. Uh. I saw Patient Killer and The Last Bid. Oh, wow. To not ha see anything, you know, now granted we had COVID thrown in there and a lot of things were few and far between, but you have an, a directorial acumen and you understand visual grammar of cinematography and in eliciting performances. So when I see that from a director, I want more. I want to see more and see how they up their own game with the next film. Well, 
I appreciate that, and that's what I would like to do. I didn't, I didn't want to do another lifetime film, film as a director at this time and, and stage of my career because I just didn't feel like, you know, I wasn't giving me the kind of fulfillment that I would want to have as far as being a director and, and giving my my voice because it's not that's not my voice. Right. It's nothing against that. I have no problem doing anything like that, but it's not it's not what my if I was like, oh yeah, this is the film I wanted to do. That's not it. Um, so. I, uh, I want to do stuff to the people and make them happy, and they were all happy, and that's great, and, and that, that makes me happy, but that's not, that's not my passion. So, like, when you say you could see the roles, these actors, like in, in Patient Killer, those were all my friends that I hired, mm-hmm. um, and, and they came and did that, and in the last bit, I was working with some friends of mine, and I got to hire a couple people that I like, too, and, and, but they were already, some people already cast, and, you know, it's just what you got to do and if I get to have this meeting on Sunday I'm going to see how it goes I'm very excited but you know it could also be something that could just end up not happening right you know I don't know how I'm going to go with the other producers so we'll see this has been just an absolute joy Casper and such a privilege for me after all these years of admiring your work I'm so thrilled and I can't wait for uh, to see your article and what you write and everything if you want to post it to me I'll repost it and everything and follow back and all that other stuff I will. I will definitely do that. And I'm just excited for people to see Hunt Club now. But for a real Casper Van Dyne experience, you've got to see Heart of a Champion and then Hunt Club. And you're going to see both ends of the spectrum at what he can give you. I personally think it's a great double feature and you throw in Saipan and it's a great triple feature. But oh, you're, you're very sweet. I really appreciate that. I also have one out called, uh, uh, I have another one coming out called uh, Monsters of California that Tom DeLong directed. And, and he's amazing, and that was an amazing film. And then I also have another one out called County Line No Fear with Tom Wombat, where I play a black hat cowboy as well. He and I had a lot of fun working together, so that worked out. I Well, this has been an absolute joy, Casper. I can't wait till we do this again. Me too, Debbie. This is awesome. Thank you so much. You're so sweet and so kind. I really appreciate it. Well, what a great conversation. What a great interview. I really appreciate this. You just made my whole week. So I'm glad. Well, you definitely made mine. So, But I know you have to run to this next 3 o'clock that you have. All right. So, thanks, Debbie. Thanks, Casper. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Casper Van Dyne talking Hunt Club, Battle for Saipan, Heart of a Champion. Uh, And we'll be talking to Casper again uh, in a couple months here. Trust me. Um, But Hunt Club, it is out now, available digitally. It is, I believe, still in some theaters, in limited release. See it. It is an interesting film. Uh, and it is entertaining, uh, really entertaining. But as I, as I said to Casper in the interview, if you really want to see a range of Casper Van Dyne, um, you can always go back to Starship Troopers, 1997 Starship Troopers. But really, Hunt Club, Heart of a Champion, Battle for Saipan are his three newest films that have come out just within the span of a few months. Uh, and that really shows you just how agile he is as an actor. Um, I just think he, I think he's wonderful. Now, this is it, folks. This is TCM Film Festival is starting. 
on this Thursday at Home Base, Hollywood Roosevelt. Screenings at the TCL Chinese Theater, a.k.a. Grauman's, and the TCL 6 upstairs, plus Legion 43. Uh, The theme this year is You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, Celebrating Film Legacies. And talk about legacies. This is the 100th anniversary of Warner Brothers. So there are going to be a lot of Warner Brothers films at the festival. I think there's still some passes available. You can buy individual tickets. You can just go to the TCM film, uh, TCM.com website and it'll direct you to the festival pages. But breaking it down this year, opening night is Rio Hondo. A beautiful 4K restoration. Angie Dickinson will be on hand, as will Steven Spielberg. Uh, broken down every year for the festival. It The festival is broken into categories. Kind of film. So if you're looking for musicals, or you're looking for, for film noir, um, and Eddie Muller hosting them and doing intros on them. If you're going to the festival, you never want to pass up a chance for an introduction by Eddie Muller, let me tell you. The czar of noir. But this year's categories are better than the original. In other words, remakes. Discoveries. The Essentials. Festival Tributes. Hollywood Dynasties. Midnight Movies. Paying It Forward. Poolside at the Hollywood Roosevelt. Opening night, there will be, and I don't have it written down in front of me right now, but there is that is always a fun, fun, fun screening. Unfortunately, it generally occurs at the same time as the red carpet. So for those that are on the red carpet or going to the opening night screening of Rio Hondo, you're going to miss the poolside. But they have other poolside events and screenings during the, the festival. Uh, and as I said, a lot of the Warner Brothers 100 uh, some of the films you're going to see this year, 12 Angry Men, African Queen, Airport, All About Eve, Amadeus, uh, American Graffiti, Ball of Fire with Barbara Stanwyck, The Batwoman, a very interesting film from 1968, Beach Party, 1963 Beach Party. It kicked off for American International Pictures, the whole Beach Party movie barrage of the 60s Frankie Avalon himself is going to be on hand I'm very excited about that Bicycle Thieves from 1948 um, director Vittorio De Sica it is if you haven't seen it and you're going to the festival see it or if you're not going to the festival check out you know streaming TCM the TCM app for streaming films uh, for the library Big Chill Laurel and Hardy shorts are going to... There's a whole segment of those. Uh, Boys Town, a tearjerker if ever there was one. Liz Taylor and Butterfield 8. Bye Bye Birdie. And Margaret will be around for that one. Uh, Carmen Jones, Dorothy Dandridge's truly big film. Casablanca, of course, one of Warner Brothers' hallmark uh, show... uh, Showpieces, Cool Hand Luke. I mean, it just goes on and on. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the original 1931. East of Eden, 
with James Dean, Enter the Dragon, you know, Footlight Parade. It is a fantastic, fantastic lineup of films. And, you know, House, and one of my all time favorites, House of Wax, 1953, Vincent Price, but it's House of Wax 3D. And that is a real treat. Uh, so, the list goes on and on and on. Of course, all you Ray uh, Harryhausen fans, Jason the Argonauts is screening. And who doesn't love Jason and the Argonauts? Um, trying to see what else. King Kong, 1933 King Kong. Uh, some, some little ones that are great. Edward G. Robinson and Larceny, Inc., then, of course, what's a TCM Film Festival without some Hitchcock? The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, Mr. Roberts, Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Cagney. Uh, just amazing. So check it out. Um, the Music Man, of course, is also going to be playing. Uh, I'm trying to think what else. Well, The Old Maid and uh, another Betty Davis movie. That is wonderful. Another Warner Brother film, Paths of Glory, Penny Serenade, where Cary Grant cries, 1941. So all of this and so much more. Um, all the, the entire weekend starts on Thursday the 13th, Friday the 14th, Saturday the 15th, Sunday the 16th. Um, if you're in Hollywood, check it out. And next week... Uh, maybe I'll do a little wrap-up of the festival next week. Still up in the air if we're doing a show next week because I may be in Vegas for the National Association of Broadcasters Convention to see what kind of new and cool cameras, lenses, sound stuff, uh, all the techie stuff that will be coming out to bring you bigger and better films. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.